Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. You guys know when you were a kid, uh, every story ended with like, they lived happily ever after? You remember it was like kind of like vaguely unsatisfying, but you still kind of loved it at the same time? Like it was just, it was perfect. And you were like, of course, how else would it end, right? Like that's the only ending. I think it was kind of like a like proto-heavenly ending, right? Like if fairy tales told us of the world as we only dreamed it could be, then the ending told us of the only ending our best dreams could ever give. And they lived happily ever after. Feels like what our souls were like built to want. But that's not reality, right? Reality very often can have different endings than that. And in fact, uh, there's very often one of two endings to every story. It's kind of like in modern role-playing games, think like a video game or like a complex board game. I'm sorry for all of you who played sports in high school and like had girlfriends and drove Camaros. This next part is just not going to make any sense. Uh, I should probably make some football analogy. I think there's something that like Taylor Swift's doing today. I don't really know. I'm just going to go with what I know. All right. So uh, anyway, uh, so basically in these games, you have all these little moments and then they stack up into these like big moments or you have little moments and little decisions. And they don't really make any difference, but you kind of have to make a decision on it. And you don't know as you're playing what's going to be the big thing or the small thing. Uh, I was recently playing a long campaign-style game of Lord of the Rings, where we were elves and dwarves and hobbits. I was Gimli, and I had my battle axe and carrying my rations and everything. It probably took us like 40 hours. I actually had to cycle through different sets of friends to play this game because no one else had the stamina that I had, you know? Uh, and then uh, the second set of friends were mad with the characters that they had gotten, but uh, that's another story. So we had played for hours and hours and hours. We had leveled up our characters. We'd gotten better swords and items. We got to the end and all died and lost. Like seriously, we had been playing for 40 hours and we're thinking this is a game. It's all kind of contrived or whatever. That can't happen. No, it can happen. And we sat there in shock. It's two in the morning. We'd been playing for hours that night alone, not to mention the countless months and weeks leading up to it, right? And we're just sitting there staring at the board game. Uh, Wade starts like shuffling through the deck, trying to find another card. Like surely there's like a resurrection card in here, right? Like surely we just need that. Josh is just quietly weeping with his hand in his, uh, buried in his face, or his face buried in his hands. It was absolutely tragic. It reminds me that there are only two endings in life. Today we have two parables and a teaching from Jesus to emphasize that. This entire chapter centers around the fact that there are only two endings. And so today we're going to look at two stories with two endings. The first one is the parable of the ten virgins. Basically back in the olden days, the bridal party had this weird special duty that I don't think has transferred over to modern time. Uh, and they would light the way for the groom when he was arriving to begin the wedding. He would come riding in uh, from out of the town or away from the house. He would ride in. There's this beautiful ancient celebration. This was like the biggest deal back then, all right? They didn't have any Super Bowls, right? They didn't have any Taylor Swift concerts. So for them, this wedding was like a big, big deal. So uh, what would happen is the uh, ten, like, women who are part of the bridal party, so you, you could think all the, like, bridesmaids and stuff like that, they would go out, they would have these torches, they would 
see the groom come riding in. He would see the torches from miles away. And then he would sort of like collect them as he was coming in, right? So he'd see the torches from far away. Then they would follow him in with the torches. And then when he arrives at the wedding, uh, they're, they're like lighting the way for him, all right? So he's arriving just sort of surrounded by this firelight. It would have been quite the spectacle. Apparently back then, uh, the bride waited at the end of the aisle for the groom, which I suggested as a more biblical model for a wedding for Sarah and I, but she rejected it. Uh, so we didn't do that. I was like, all your bridesmaids, they come in with torches, they stand behind me, you stand at the end, it'll be great. People cry when they see me, right? That's the big drawback to being the groom just waiting at the end. Sarah said no. So anyway, basically, these torches were rags that were dipped in oil and then lit, and they had to be dipped every so often so that they could continue burning. And apparently in our story today, five of the bridesmaids brought extra oil and five did not and ran out before the groom arrived. So they left to buy more, and then, as I said, there's two endings to every story. Here's the ending for this one. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day, or you know neither the day nor the hour. If you were here last week, you remember uh, that we ended our look at the end times with Jesus' caution to stay awake. And this parable kind of fits in. It's like almost like a transition from that idea that was all of 24. Now, you see why I did not want to read 24 and into 25, all right? But this is kind of like a transition from last week to this week. The caution is very much the same, right? Jesus is going to turn, return one day, and he's either going to find us ready, like the five bridesmaids who had oil, or he is going to find us not ready, like the five bridesmaids who did not. All right, so that's sort of like the intro parable. Two endings to that parable. You're either ready for the king and enjoying the marriage feast, or you are not. The next is the parable of the talents. In this story, the master, God, leaves his servants looking over his money. He leaves them with talents. Now, talents back then was not like, you know, you can uh, roll your tongue or something like that. Uh, talents is actually this word, and it's kind of funny, like, there's no reason why anyone should ever look this up, but it's fascinating. They've lost this measurement to time. We don't know how much this is other than it was just a whole lot, all right? So uh, it's just tons and tons of money, like more than you could make in a year. We'll call it like a million dollars, all right? So he leaves one with $5 million, he leaves one with $2 million, and he leaves one with $1 million. And when he comes back, the one who had five had turned that into 10, the one who had two had turned that into four, and the one with one said this, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what it, you have what is yours. If you know this story or if you heard it when Kirby was reading, the master does not react well. He says that he should have at least gotten interest instead of just burying the money in the ground. So he takes all the money and he gives it to the one with five who now has 10, I guess now 11, and says this to all of them. Verse 29, for to everyone who has more or has more will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's one ending. The other ending is what's repeated to the first two servants. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of 
of your master. Does your blood pressure not like just ease up a little bit when you read that? Enter into the joy of your master. That is so good. That is good news. That is the ending that you want, right? So how do we get this ending and not the other one? Well, unlike the previous parable where Jesus just tells us to make sure that we are prepared, in this one, he tells us a little bit more of how to prepare, but it's still a metaphor. He's just getting a little bit clearer in this one, right? Here, God shows us that he has entrusted us with something. He has made an investment in us, and he expects a return. Now, I don't think this is like an admonition just to make a lot of money, right? Like, I don't think this is like God is just a shrewd investor, like he's Charles Schwab up there or something like that. I don't know. That's the only investor I could name. I should probably know an investor. Anyway, uh, like, God's not up there like, well, if you don't make more money than the money than you started with, then, like, you're not getting into heaven. I don't think that's how that works. No, instead, he has made some sort of investment in us. As followers of Jesus, he's made an investment in us. So what has he given us, and what does he expect from us? Well, I believe that the answer is in the last teaching. The final judgment. This one's less of a story and more of a direct call to us in case we missed it in the parables. Here are the endings. You can see uh, both of them in 34 and 41, and then he sums it all up in 46. So first verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 sums it all up. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, the endings are the same as in the two prior parables. You are either invited to come and enjoy the kingdom prepared for you and the eternal life, or you are invited to depart from Jesus as if he never knew you. So what has he given to us that we're supposed to be faithful with? What are we supposed to be like uh, trusted with his investment in us? I think it hinges on this lesson, which is actually repeated four times in this passage. All right, He shapes it in different ways. Here are two of them. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him. These are the ones who inherit the kingdom, right? Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The answer of what he entrusts us to do and what he entrusts us with is not money. That really would only affect like the food and clothes part of this one, right? It isn't wisdom. It isn't power. You don't need anything special really to bring to the table in these situations where God is calling us to serve. The answer is simply love. He's given us love. Just think about it. It's love that would fuel you to feed the hungry, right? It's love that would give you or make you give drink to the thirst, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned. It's the only answer that makes sense. Here's two reasons. First, love is the gift that allows us to do his work and enjoy his kingdom. I mean, think about it. It was the love of God that led him to make us at all. It was the love of God that led him to send his son to die for us. It was the love of God that looked on you and all of your unloveliness and decided to die for you. 
was the love of God that made Jesus give his life for you. It is the love of God that allows you and I to accept this gift and enjoy the kingdom of God forever. And finally, it is that same love that flows into us, sets us free from sin, and frees us to live lives of love for those around us. You ever think about the fact that there's like electricity that's like flowing around in your body all the time? Or are you normal? I guess maybe those are the options, right? Not a single person was like, yeah, been there, <laughs> right, right? We're basically batteries, you know? Like there's just electrical impulses running around and nothing in your body would work without them. Not a single thing. That's exactly what love is for the follower of Jesus. He actually gives us this love to fuel every single thing that we are doing. In so doing, we are no longer slaves to sin, as Paul says, but we get to devote ourselves, willfully enslave ourselves to righteousness, to doing good in God's kingdom. And the only way that we can actually get there is by actually accepting the gift of the love of God in our own selves, by actually taking this gift of good, of the grace of Jesus that he offers to us, accepting his love love as it is perfectly portrayed for us on the cross, taking that into our lives and then using that as the fuel by which we might love others. See, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is that if you just, you know, give somebody who's thirsty a drink or put, you know, a shirt on somebody's back, that that's like earning a ticket into heaven. But I think instead what he is saying here is that that will be evidence that you are one of my people, that that's actually the way that my followers will live. That my love is so good and so transforming that it will so fill up their lives that this will be the natural result. Think about it for just a moment what the love of God is and how powerful, life-changing it is. It's like he gives us this overwhelming love that we don't even deserve, that we could never earn, that we can't even fully wrap our minds around. And so naturally what would happen is that love would go into us and it would spill out onto the world around us. We might be a people who are known by that love. This is because love is the only thing that he could give us that we could use to make more. The only thing that he could give us that we could use to make more. It's kind of like a sourdough starter, right? Like you get some and then it grows and then you're giving it to all your friends and they're like, please stop, no more sourdough, right? Like it's just all over the place. It's spreading and growing and growing and growing. That's what the love of God is inside of you. So we take this love of God and we invest it in others. We do it in simple ways, right? giving food and drink and clothing and time and hospitality. That's all that was listed there, right? You don't need a seminary degree for that. There's no sort of like skills training there. Did you notice how universal it is too? Matthew was writing this for us 2,000 years ago and still people all around us need these exact same things. People right here in this room have the capacity to give these exact same things. And this for us is righteousness. For many of us, we've been slowly deluded uh, into believing that righteousness is all about what we don't do, right? We don't drink too much. We don't steal things. 
We don't like, uh, you know, commit adultery or anything else like that. We try and keep the Ten Commandments. And we think that this is righteousness. But what does Jesus say about all of this love giving? He actually concludes this passage by saying, verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So everything that he just described about, like, feeding the hungry and giving drink and clothing and time and hospitality, all of those things, he then concludes by calling those people righteous. And there's a simple paradigm here, and I want to hit it hard before we move on for this. I really realized this far too late. I realized that, like, this morning, and I was just like, man, I should have thought of this way, way earlier. This is, like, kind of the end of Jesus beating up on the Pharisees. And so I want to, like, make this point extremely clear. Hopefully, if you've been here, you've been picking up that there's kind of a, like, divide there, right? And basically, there is a group of people who do everything right. They are who the world considers righteous. They follow the rules. They're big on understanding the Bible and calling out those who do it wrong. But they don't care anything for the poor and the needy and the marginalized. And they are called the Pharisees, the opponents of Jesus, the one that he is causing discomfort and disruption for. Jesus instead tells us that there is another group of people. They are a group of people who love what Jesus loves, or rather they love who Jesus loves. Those people, he says, all too simply will enjoy eternal life forever. Who would you rather be? I know if you're anything like me, I find myself all too often stuck in that Pharisee category more concerned with my own personal ideas of what righteousness looks like and ignoring the needs that are all around me and all too present. If you would say to yourself, I want to be involved in this Jesus work, but I'm not really sure how, you can think of no better way than plugging into one of our relationships that we have here in the city, one of our partnerships. We've been talking about them all over the past month. Joshua Station serves people living in poverty and transitioning out of homelessness. Save Our Youth serves students at their most vulnerable stages of their lives. Hope and Home takes foster kids from all backgrounds and pairs them with healthy, stable Christian foster parents. Compassion International literally gives food and water and clothing and the gospel to children across the planet, and there are countless, countless other ways. In fact, I believe right now that I can confidently say if the Holy Spirit is right now convicting you in your own heart of the ways in which maybe you've been hoarding the love of God all to yourself, I believe that he will also be kind enough to show you a way that you can help out. It might even be on the ride home. There's so much need and so much pain and so much suffering in our city right now that you don't have to look far to find the least of these. Pray that God will help you find someone even today. But before all of that, I want to sort of conclude today by just inviting you to join with me and sit for a moment and soak up this love of God. Because ultimately, if some nerdy guy you know, guilt you into being nice to the least of these, it's not going to last very long and it's not going to mean anything. It'd be nothing but empty works. But if we can imagine 
in our minds, if we can open up our hearts to understand the infinite love of God just a little bit more today. I don't even think we can understand it completely, but if you can just open that shutter just a little bit more and let a little bit more sink deeply into your heart, I believe it is going to translate into us loving the world more, loving the least of these, loving the hard to love. It is this love of God that defines you. Gives your life movement and being and purpose. It is this love that fuels your efforts to do his kingdom work. This love that changes everything about you. This love that shapes, that guides, that directs you. Enjoy and embrace the love of God today. And you guys can come on back up. <clears throat> We're now going to transition into a time of response. This is an opportunity for you to actually just take some time and enjoy the love of God. We do it uh, first and foremost through the celebration of communion. We thank Jesus for his sacrifice on the cross where he bled and died for you and for me. This bread symbolizes the body. This juice symbolizes the blood that was shed for you. And in so doing, we get to celebrate the love of God every single week. Do not let this be an empty symbol. Do not let this pass by as just a, a rote rit ritual. Instead, taste and enjoy the love of God. We're also going to uh, have some folks in the very back of the room who would love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. Maybe you want to know more about this love of God. Uh, they would love to pray with you. They would love to connect with you. They would love to talk more about that. Maybe you have something that is stopping you from really understanding and embracing this love of God. Go back there. Enjoy. Embrace. Someone praying over you. And finally, I say this every week, so maybe it just sort of like goes in one ear, out the other. But take this time. This time is yours. We're giving you a quiet and safe space to just sit and embrace the love of God. Maybe you want to stand and sing. Maybe you want to stay seated. Maybe you need to take a moment just to yourself and find a corner in the room where you can actually pray. But I would just ask you, more than anything that I could say to you today, you spending time actually thinking on the love of God might be the best thing. It might be the reason why you came here today. So let me pray over you. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your love. God, we want to work serve your kingdom, God. We want to be a part of your good kingdom work. God, we want to be people who are defined by your love, not by what we bring to the table. So today, God, I invite you to fill us up. Fill us up with your love. Give us a taste of this heaven that you have promised to us. Give us a small sample of the love that you have for us, the great and unknowable, the infinite love that you have for us. God, let us feel it today. Let us know it today. Fill us up with your love. Draw us towards your kingdom. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. 
in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time is yours. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.